0: ASN thanks OTSCA America Pharmaceutical Inc. for
1: support of this podcast. Hi, I'm Kurt Campbell, uh, ASN Kidney Week Program Committee Co Chair, and this is day two of ASN Kidney Week, and I'm joined here for a podcast with uh, two very esteemed colleagues of mine, Ms. Precious McCowan and Dr. Amy Model. Uh, I'll ask you both to introduce yourself before we talk about some highlights of today's program. Ms. McCowan.
0: Sure. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. My name is Precious McCowan. I am a two-time kidney transplant recipient. I'm also a national patient advocate, educator, and mentor. Um, I advocate for my peers and also myself, and I have had the pleasure of being part of the ASN Education Committee this year
2: and last year.
1: Where well, you've done a fantastic job. Dr. Model.
2: Yes. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. I'm Amy Model. I'm a nephrologist and clinical researcher focusing primarily on diabetes and chronic kidney disease. I'm also a clinical trialist and have been really um, uplifted by the amount of information that's come through today, particularly with respect to treatments for our patient population
1: thanks so much, Dr. Model. And I think it's certainly a lot to to highlight today with uh, exceptional plenary uh, speaker sessions as well as the high impact clinical trials. So Ms. McCon, what's uh, stood out in your mind uh, today from what you've seen?
0: Today has been a very interesting day. It has been revolutionary and groundbreaking for me. I had the opportunity to attend the um, high impact clinical trial, session, and I've learned so much about myself and treatments that will soon be available to individuals like me that are challenged with kidney disease. Um, one of the sessions that, um, or or clinical trials, that really stood out to me was um, by Dr. Deidre Cruz where it was talking about the um, dietary um, dietary um, for Indo- African-American individuals with hypertension. Um, and, and, and it was talking about their potassium and helping them to control their potassium. That's something that I have been challenged with, and her findings really stood out to me because I found also – that when I received that guidance from my healthcare team, when I received that extra education and that extra push and that knowledge about foods to uh, stay away from, foods that I can modify, my health turned out to be much better. So that is one that really stood out to me. And another one that I would like to add is the one about personalized uh, cooling, dialysite and I'm hoping I'm saying it correctly, but as a dialysis patient, you know, I did dialysis for nine years before receiving my second kidney transplant, and I did in-center hemodialysis, and I could remember being hooked up to the machine, like, freezing to death, Uh, like, can I complete my treatment for four hours You know, I just remember being so cold and uncomfortable, but to know that there is a trial in place where they're trying to, you know, measure that for individuals that are on dialysis to make it more manageable for us and more comfortable has really inspired me today to continue to advocate and know that there is hope on the way.
1: Thanks so much, Mr. McCown. And, yes, those were uh, two very illuminating uh, studies. And Dr. Cruz's study, uh, in fact, really highlighted the fact that uh, providing healthy foods alone, right, uh, and and access to healthy foods was really not necessarily sufficient, right, to lead to positive outcomes. But the the added coaching, right, uh, and implementation of a coaching regimen uh, really, really made a difference. So thanks for, for that insight. How about you, Dr. Model? What stood out for you today?
2: Well, I definitely agree with Precious that those two trials were very interesting. And I just want to underscore, actually, with respect to the dietary intervention, that they actually found similar reductions in albuminuria, as we often will see in um, medication trials as well. And so it's great to see that really we do need to uptake our recommendations for patients and education over the long haul to uh, change their lifestyles as well to modify their future with respect to their kidney disease. I think one of the huge stars of this entire um, convention, however, has really got to be EMPA Kidney. You know, it is not the first of its kind. It follows in, in the footsteps of Credence and DAPA CKD. But what EMPA Kidney really did for us was to solidify the importance of SGA. SGLT2 inhibitors for not only people with diabetes and proteinuric kidney disease, but also those with non proteinuric kidney disease. So while they did not find a reduction in their primary endpoint, which was a composite of uh, end stage kidney disease and renal death, um, they did find a slowing of EGFR slope regardless of baseline albuminuria, and I think that's really a a take-home point and is going to change care. The other point that I thought they brought into the wealth of data that we are accruing in SGLT2 inhibitors is that they were even effective not only for IgA nephropathy, Um, but actually pretty much across the board for glomerular diseases. Now, of course, they did not find within other subgroups, looking at them in isolations, for instance, FSGS or a composite of other glomerular diseases, but they really showed that there was no modification according to the type of uh, glomerular disease. And so I think it's important that we have that as part of our armamentarium that is not an immunosuppressant for these patients.
1: Absolutely. I think that's definitely, I would agree, um, you know, the highest impact, right, uh, <laughs> discovery that we could uh, talk about uh, today. And it's also interesting that, that patients with higher le- levels of albuminuria, right, uh, patients who were uh, sort of, a, I guess, sicker at baseline may have benefited the most, right? And mm-hmm, you're seeing this sure. across the, 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 the um, class, right, uh, of SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so definitely becoming a part of our, our mentarium, as, as you're saying.
2: A hundred percent.
1: All right. No, that's, that, that's definitely a uh, useful insight. And, and, you know, I guess as a, a researcher in the diabetic uh, kidney disease space, um, uh, you know, I think this must be um, sort of a, a groundbreaking moment, right, with so many options uh, for patients. Um, uh, how do you see the implementation of some of these findings uh, um, really coming about? Um, you know, I think we, we know that uptake of uh, flows in use uh, has not necessarily been where it should be, right, among nephrologists and other physicians. So how do you think we can implement that? Uh, yeah, no,
2: findings? that's a- that's a great point, Kirk. So um, we know that we don't even implement uh, RAS inhibition as often as we really should. Um, most studies show that at best we're about 75%. Uh, use in chronic kidney disease, including in diabetes. Uh, And with respect to SGLT2 inhibitors, there was actually an article that just came out last month in Diabetes Care uh, that was done in the UK that actually showed that over the course of the last 10 years since SGLT2 inhibitors were... Uh, released for clinical use, the uptake has been much greater in people without chron- without chronic kidney disease than among people with chronic kidney disease um, and in fact, you know sglt two inhibitors in this study were actually the second least commonly used medication in people with kidney disease as opposed to those people without chronic kidney disease in which case it was the second most commonly used uh, medication for diabetes so we have so much work ahead of us and I think just all of the excitement and enthusiasm that we're seeing in not just sglT2 inhibitors but of other therapies as well so Glp ones finerenone, you know really all of this is lending to an increased awareness of chronic kidney kidney disease, which we also know is very poor, about 40% in general. um, And that's for the people with the um, highest risk of progression. Um, So so lots of work ahead of us, but I think that we can uh, keep this momentum moving forward. I think there is a lot of activity on the part of the ASN, which, you know, is very active in policy and trying to increase the uptake of um, guidelines, not only from professional guidelines but also the U- U.S. Preventive S- uh, Services Task Force is being asked yet again to review the data uh, regarding uh, screening for for kidney disease. Um, across the board and, and, and lots of others that I could actually go on about. But I think I think we're making making our way in every space in industry, in academia, and you know, governmental organizations. And so I think we're gonna get there. I just hope we increase the pace. Yeah, Might so I
0: much. add something? Um hearing the information about SGLT two inhibitors has inspired me to have that talk with my nephrologist. And I have a question for you. I wonder, would an individual like myself benefit from it? Um, I am a type 1 diabetic, and I have a kidney transplant. So would those uh, SGLT2 inhibitor um, help someone like me from experiencing maybe... um, kidney transplant failure due to diabetes? Because we know over time, diabetes and hypertension
2: affects the kidney. You know, Precious, <laughs> you just hit the nail on the head. So um, currently, um, there is not an official recommendation for use of SGLT2 inhibitors with in people with kidney transplants. And it really has not been tried on, on the basis of a clinical trial level of data. Um, about six to 800 people, I believe now, um, have been tried on SGLT2 inhibitors, and they do seem to be quite safe. Mm-hmm. However, whether they have the same impact on reducing not only the kidney but actually the cardiovascular endpoints uh, in people with a kidney transplant, Uh, We we really don't know that yet, and I think there's a lot of clamoring and and hope that such a trial will actually be undertaken. Um, I will say, since you have type 1 diabetes, Mm Um, You know, some people would have a little bit more concern for you there because these drugs actually increase the risk for development of diabetic ketoacidosis, and people with type 1 diabetes are at much higher risk of that than people with type 2 diabetes. However, that being said, I will tell you that I know – many endocrinologists and nephrologists, including myself, who have given them to people with type 1 diabetes who are at very high risk. So I would say people with severe albuminuria. And it, and it really would have to go to somebody who we know, like yourself, would be really cognizant in how to monitor oneself for development of ketoacidosis. Sometimes we give urinary dipsticks to, to check for ketoacidosis ketones and such. So that would really have to be a, a private conversation with your nephrologist, but definitely worth asking.
1: Great discussion. Thank you so much. And of course, we had a number of exceptional topics covered in the high-impact clinical trials uh, a section from uh, the best uh, fluids, balanced crystalloids, uh, to um, decrease the risk of delayed graft function, and um, NOx inhibitors for diabetic kidney disease, uh, um, uh, multi-medication-targeted alert systems in in AKI, and and so on, uh, novel therapeutics for IG nephropathy. And um, we really um, have a lot to look forward to in the kidney space. Uh, During the plenary earlier, uh, Dr. Locke uh, also uh, gave a a nice talk uh, on xenotransplantation, right? And That's a a major advance uh, in the kidney field, right, and and bringing hope, right, for the patients who are lingering on wait lists, uh, right, Uh, uh, waiting uh, for uh, an organ. So I just wanted to get the perspective of the both of you, right, Uh, on the prospects for xenotransplantation, transplantation, you know, as a viable strategy, right, Uh, for transplantation um, in, in the kidney space. So Dr. Model, I'll start with you
2: yeah no i I listened very intently on that, and you know it really was uh, an amazing um step towards one day, perhaps being able to implement this. It's of course many, many years away um so you know i I would say that patients should not get um too their hopes too high at this point. Uh, for that to be happening anytime soon, but you know oh. they traversed. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> precious, but but you know they traversed major barriers. So in fact, they were able to actually get a negative cross match prior to transplant with this ten gene knockout uh, pig model, and they actually were able to implant it. Uh, not have any kind of acute rejection, and also able to produce urine even thereafter. Now, they weren't able to show that um, there was a reduction, or actually, I'm sorry, an improvement in creatinine clearance. However, the the kidney continued to function up through the 72-hour period that they continued the study um and they also showed that there was uh no transmission of uh porcine related viral infections as well which was was yet another uh barrier that they could they could overcome so it's really really um great great hope for the future
1: yeah i, I thought you know definitely paying a lot of attention to some of the thrombotic and infectious complications yes. and those certainly hurdles that uh are being addressed uh, in a fruitful way uh, Precious, what are your thoughts?
0: Um, I am very hopeful, um, praying that I'm still alive to, to see it happen. Um, I learned so much during that, that session. A lot of information, I believe that um, I'm going to get that opportunity to take back to my peers and kind of let them know where we are now with the xeno Um You know, as my second kidney transplant, I waited on the wait list for eight years. And mainly because there is a shortage of organs, you know, individuals donating organs and and so forth. So this is so meaningful to not only myself, but I know my colleagues as well. Um, We have been waiting to hear this type of news and, and, and this type of opportunity that may be coming forth. Um, another ground, groundbreaking development that is also dear to my heart is the implantable bio-artificial kidney. I know that that is a, a ways to come and that is it being developed as well, but still it is something that is bringing hope to the kidney community. So. Fingers crossed that I'm alive to be able to see this happen and to see so many lives being changed. Um, I, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. And I would like to thank the developers, and researchers, and scientists that have put so many years of hard work into trying to um, trying to figure this out for individuals that are struggling with kidney disease. So once again, my, my word for this entire uh, uh, ASN conference so far has been hope. So I have been very hopeful, and hope has been given to me just through all the sessions that I have, have had the opportunity to attend.
1: I think that is a perfect note for us to close on. Very inspiring words, uh, Ms. McCowan, and and I think you reminded us of why we're doing a lot of this work, and and you're truly an inspiration to us as well as we uh, see patients in our own practices and engage in meaningful uh, research along the way. So thank you so much uh, for that, and thank you all for your attention. Again, this is uh, day two of uh, ASN Kidney Week, and a lot more good stuff to come. Thank you.
0: ASN thanks Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Inc. for support of this podcast.